To the University of Michigan campus in 1955 came hundreds of scientists hoping to hear the words that would signal the end of polio's long and ruthless reign of terror. Heading the medical men was Dr. Jonas Salk, whose polio vaccine had been tested and carefully evaluated. Then the historic announcement, the vaccine works. It is safe, effective, and potent. Someday, said Dr. Salk, a vaccine may completely eradicate the menace of polio. Working at Pittsburgh University's Virus Research Laboratory, a 40-year-old Dr. Salk labored three years, often 16 hours a day. For as long as we've existed, humankind has had to deal with infectious diseases. We handle some infections better than others, but there have been plenty of examples throughout history where infections have gotten the better of us. Smallpox, influenza, polio, these are just a few examples which have killed countless numbers of people over time. The history of vaccines comes directly out of this experience. I was born in 1953, so obviously a lot of people don't remember this anymore, but the 1950s was really the peak of uh, uh, significant concern around polio, uh, again, in this part of the world. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, when polio you know, has seasonal peaks, it would tend to peak in, uh, the, uh, in the summer and late summer in particular, and uh, it was not uncommon to see, uh, to see very significant uh, polio cases. As a matter of fact, those photographs of the iron lungs, you know, there were unfortunately kids, you know, uh, who uh, were suffering from actual poliomyelitis oftentimes had to be placed in order to help them breathe. Dr. Emilio Mini is the director of the Tuberculosis and HIV Global Program at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. He has seen firsthand the impact of vaccines in minimizing certain diseases, both professionally and personally. Polio peaked in the U.S. in 1952, and at the time, the vaccine was actually given on a cube of sugar. Spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down. I was in elementary school, can't remember, I think it was first grade actually. So this would put it in the very late 50s, early, early, early 60s. You've seen these pictures of these children all lined up, you know, ready to get their oral polio vaccines, you know, which were those little red dots on, on, on these sugar cubes. Dr. Amini is referring to one of two kinds of polio vaccines that we have out there. The oral vaccine, which was nicknamed the sugar lump vaccine, was used until 2000. And now, the polio vaccine is given as an injection, at least here in the U.S., and it's usually combined with other vaccine antigens. But the striking thing about it, if you look at those pictures, those children were all lined up to get that vaccine because, because the alternative was to remain susceptible to polio and poliomyelitis, and that was not considered an acceptable alternative. was a devastating and widespread illness that led to permanent disability in children. The United States has been polio-free for 40 years thanks to the effectiveness of this vaccine. So how did this vaccine, and all vaccines for that matter, come to be? That's what we're talking about today on The Antigen. I'm your host, Yasmina Gosti. So we won't be able to cover everything in the history of vaccines, but we will focus on the highlights. Smallpox is an important one. You may remember the name Edward Jenner from your high school science class, but the history of vaccines actually starts much earlier than that. 
Here's Dr. Stanley Plotkin. He's a professor emeritus of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He's developed several vaccines and is now a vaccinology consultant. The history of vaccines, in a way, begins before recorded history. That is, that in areas of the Far East and the Middle East, people were using scabs from smallpox to inoculate the skin of people who had never had smallpox. And so they essentially developed a mild form of smallpox and were protected against uh, severe disease and death, which uh, it's estimated that about 30% of all smallpox cases died. It's estimated that smallpox has killed more than 300 million people before the World Health Organization declared that it had been eradicated in 1980. As early as the year 1000, there's evidence that people in China were purposely infecting themselves with smallpox in order to protect against the full-blown disease. From there, the practice of what we call variolation spread west. Variolation is the act of introducing dried pus from a smallpox pustule into the skin of a person to actually protect that person. Now, Edward Jenner is the person who is best recognized for smallpox variolation. But there were others who also did their part to advance this idea. One person worth noting is actually a mom. An English lady named Mary Wortley Montague was a major advocate for smallpox variolation in the UK. Lady Mary was the wife of the British ambassador to Turkey, and while living there, she witnessed smallpox inoculations. When she returned to Britain in the early 18th century, she brought with her the knowledge of what she had seen and her experience inoculating her own son. What is generally true about science is that although eventually one person or one laboratory succeeds in, in doing something which is important and obtains the credit for it, almost always there are multiple people working on the same problem. And uh, whether the lab that succeeds uh, may succeed because of dumb luck or because of an insight that other people didn't have. But smallpox obviously was a major threat, killing literally millions of people. And it just so happened that Jenner was the one who did it most systematically. It is said, and I, I think confirmed, that there were other people, the name of Benjamin Chesty being one, uh, who had the same insight into how to protect against smallpox, but didn't go any further. Uh, so the race is won not only by people who start the race, but also um, more importantly, by those who finish the race uh, by coming up with a practical product that uh, can be used uh, to protect people. As everybody knows, uh, Jenner in England, who observed that women who milk cows were relatively immune to smallpox, and that was because they were exposed to pox viruses from animals. And so he started to use what we think is a horsepox virus, 
to immunize uh, against smallpox. Smallpox virulation is commonly seen as the beginning of the modern era of vaccination. And uh, that was, of course, very successful and became the practice uh, throughout the developed world. Uh, it quickly spread to the U.S. There were people like Cotton Mather, the uh, preacher who uh, pleaded in favor of uh, what's called vaccination, which uh, controls smallpox outbreaks. But then nothing much happened for about 80 years uh, until the work of Louis Pasteur in France. Louis Pasteur is credited with learning how to attenuate or weaken a germ before using it to make a vaccine. This was a major step forward after smallpox virulation, which wasn't entirely risk-free. Now, Pasteur started his career as a chemist, but he became interested in uh, biology, and notably, for example, he worked on uh, diseases of, of vines that producing grapes. Of course, in France, uh, the production of wine is very important, and that was a dramatic uh, discovery and help for the wine industry, and he uh, achieved a certain amount of fame for that, which allowed him to start a laboratory in Paris on uh, other issues. The history of vaccines is often intertwined with understanding diseases in animals. Like many scientific discoveries, some of Pasteur's work came about due to happenstance. One example was studying chicken cholera, a highly contagious and serious disease of chickens. He was working with a disease of uh, chickens, and the summer holiday came. This was in the 1880s. And so, of course, he went off uh, on a holiday, uh, but then came back in September and uh, found on the table of his laboratory a culture of the uh, chicken cholera organism and tried to induce disease in chickens with that culture, which had worked before. And he observed that the chickens did not become ill. Um, and fortunately, the bulb went off, and he realized that the ch chickens had been protected by the culture that had sat on the laboratory bench all summer. And so then he began to attack the issue scientifically and developed an organism that could be injected into chickens that would protect them against the severe disease. The chicken cholera vaccine was the first laboratory-developed vaccine, a discovery important for poultry farmers, no doubt, and as it turns out, for humans, too. Louis Pasteur's discoveries didn't stop with chickens. And then, of course, he turned his attention to human diseases. And as everybody will remember, he developed the rabies vaccine because rabies was an important disease in France at that time, uh, and began work on uh, other pathogens as well. Uh, and of course, other scientists realized the significance of uh, Pasteur's work. Towards the end of the 19th century, scientists were working on the next major development in vaccinology, 
creating inactivated or killed vaccines. Vaccines for typhoid, plague, and cholera were all made at this time. As vaccinology developed over time, we also learned important things about the immune system. The tetanus and diphtheria toxoid vaccines, which were developed in the first half of the 20th century, are great examples of this. Both of these bacteria produce toxins, which are primarily responsible for the disease symptoms. So on the one side, you have vaccinology trying to figure out how to inactivate these toxins in order to make toxoid vaccines. And on the other side, you have immunology figuring out that there's something in the blood that can counteract these toxins. And at the time, this substance was referred to as an antitoxin, but we later learned that this was in fact antibodies. Flash forward to the 1920s and 1930s, where we have the development of several new live attenuated vaccines like tuberculosis and yellow fever. And then we have several more killed whole cell vaccines, including typhus, influenza vaccine, and pertussis. Let's talk about pertussis, whooping cough, bacterium. And you grow them up in the lab and you kill them by heat or a chemical so that they can't cause disease. That's Dr. Sarah Long. She's a pediatric infectious disease specialist and professor of pediatrics at Drexel University College of Medicine. She's taken care of patients with serious infections and helped to create important vaccine policies for over 40 years. You clean them up a bit so that, you know, you can make this into a reproducible kind of an injection, and you inject that, that's what whole cell pertussis vaccine was. And the good part about those kinds of vaccines is that you have lots of, lots of parts of the organism, and your body can respond to uh, a thousand antigens or bits and baubles of the bacterium that can help you when you see it. Uh, it's not just a single thing. It's all the pieces, and you can respond to all those pieces. That was the good part about wholesale vaccine. The part that isn't so good is that when they are that incompletely defined, then you very frequently have reactions to them because they're not purified pieces. In the second half of the 20th century, we continued to learn to make vaccines, going from using the entire germ to only specific parts of the germ. These vaccines are known as subunit vaccines. While vaccinology was figuring out how to design new vaccines, the field was also perfecting how to grow the materials needed to make those vaccines. The major thing that happened just after the Second World War was the work of a group in Boston led by John Enders, which was essentially the development of culturing cells from um, human material or from animals and culture. That is, taking the cells, putting them into a glass or plastic bottle and allowing the cells to multiply and then injecting those cultures with viruses. Uh, which allowed laboratory people to grow viruses in large quantity. And that led to a number of, of vaccines and is, of course, still 
a very important uh, technique. Uh, but um, now we have multiple strategies to develop vaccines. Uh, that is um, by taking the, the agents of disease apart, uh, by cultivating them in different ways, uh, using components uh, to use the cliche. It's a whole new ball game as far as vaccine development is concerned. Long gone are the days of smallpox variolation, where you essentially had to go out and find a cow with cowpox before you could get what you needed to make the vaccine. From 1955 onwards, the list of new vaccines starts to get long. We have even more kinds of live attenuated vaccines, like polio, measles, mumps, and rubella. We have even more kinds of killed whole cell vaccines, including new versions of polio and rabies vaccines. And then we have a really important advance in the science of subunit vaccines, conjugation. Originally, certain vaccines were based on the sugar coat of a bacteria, but a child's immune system wasn't able to respond very well to just this part alone. It wasn't until vaccinology figured out that it had to join the sugar to a protein in order to make the response better. This was done for Hib and meningococcus first, and then for pneumococcus. We heard about Hib in the first episode with Dr. Kathy Edwards. And similar to Hib, prior to the creation of the vaccine, pneumococcus or streptococcus pneumoniae was a bacteria that afflicted thousands of young children and infants in the US and around the globe. And then there are those that really, really, really changed the landscape during my time. And those were conjugate vaccines. Conjugate vaccines like pneumococcal conjugate vaccine or Hib conjugate vaccine takes a piece of the organism that you want to make the antibodies against, that you want to protect against, that we know if you just gave that by itself, especially children, wouldn't respond to well, and you chemically hook it to something else that you're really not trying to get an antibody response to, but it makes the immune system behave in a different way when it sees the part that you care about that's conjugated to it. Well, that was the basis of the pneumococcal and the Hib conjugate vaccines. There are some other very important aspects to vaccine history we should talk about, like vaccine schedules. Here in the U.S., we have a vaccine schedule that covers the entire lifespan. And every year we learn more or we have new vaccines, wonderful, that we have to get into the schedule or we have recognized a new burden of disease or a new age group who's the reservoir of disease or we have people coming into the country who have had different vaccines, different schedules, but every single year, all year round, and then once a year, the Centers for Disease Control with lots and lots of input from experts and in conjunction with the American Academy of Pediatrics and the College of Family Physicians and the obstetricians and gynecologists when it's relevant, all have representatives who are experts who go through this schedule and change things that have to be changed. Dr. Long is describing the important work of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice, or ACIP. 
This group meets three times a year to determine the best schedule. They include instructions on which vaccines to give at which ages, how many doses, and how long to wait between doses, as well as who should not receive certain vaccines and why. ACIP provides all of this information on the Centers for Disease Control website in easy-to-understand language for patients, their families, and healthcare providers. At the most basic level, the vaccine schedule is designed so that you get certain vaccines at certain times in your life to protect you when you are at greatest risk for getting those diseases. And we know it's very burdensome for doctors to try to remember what the schedules are, and there are all kinds of ways now that one can access this and, and um, use computer programs as well as uh, resources to know who has had what in the past and what they need to be caught up on and what you don't need to give multiple times and where you need to start over or you don't need to start over. And it is all published once a year, and I participate in that um, uh, as I've been an associate editor of the Red Book of the American Academy of Pediatrics and on uh, a work group at the Centers for Disease Control, I can't tell you how we try to clarify that, make it as brief as it can possibly be, not change things for the sake of changing things, um, but trying to make it so that vaccines are used in their optimal fashion so that they're not misused or thrown away, and so they're not used dangerously in people who shouldn't be receiving them. These are very intentioned plans. Most people first learn about vaccine schedules when they've just had a baby. Hepatitis B is usually given at birth, and after that, many vaccines are started as part of a series at two months of age. It's natural for parents to wonder why their babies need so many shots so early in life. Dr. Todd Wolin, a general pediatrician and owner of Kids Plus Pediatrics in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, helps to explain. Kids are most susceptible in their first year of life in succumbing to these diseases, which is why we see these vaccines being given so early and in a repeated fashion because they boost in the sequences that they're given to get your immune system up to a point where it's sufficient to provide protection. And so by spacing things out, quote unquote, using alternative schedules, those only come with risk. Dr. Long reminds us why we shouldn't forget that immunizations beyond childhood are just as important but these go on through your lifetime, and there are different things, different organisms that you forget how to respond to. As you get older, your immune system reverts a little bit to being not as clever as it once was, and you begin, you begin and end life as extremely vulnerable to infectious diseases. So as we hope to live longer, we will have to have more and more vaccines that we are giving through a lifetime because it's a good payoff for not having these organisms around to have to get reminded of them periodically by an immunization. Vaccine history has also become highly evolved in terms of monitoring safety. So the success of these programs depends on the safety of every single one. So we have a trust with the public that we want to protect their children. So there's as much scrutiny 
if not more scrutiny of the safety of vaccines along their development as there is about their effectiveness. And it's something for the safety purposes that's ongoing as long as the vaccines are used. So there are multiple systems that are in place where individuals can report what they think is an adverse event from a vaccine. And there are uh, very, very sophisticated systems that then look to see what is the chance that this is what we would call a sentinel event or a flag that this might be related to the vaccine, or is it something that would be expected in a population in the same kind of way, the same kind of timing, the same kind of age group that is not related to the vaccine at all to get very early signals. So there's that general system that's called Vaccines Adverse Events Reporting System, VAERS. And then there are multiple others that I think of more as adjunctive systems when you have a particular question about a vaccine so that there are multiple ways in which we look at vaccine safety and monitor it all the time. Vaccine history is incredibly interesting and complex. And hopefully this episode has given you a sense that the field is now a highly systematic, safe and effective way to protect people against diseases across the lifespan. Next time on The Antigen, we're focusing on the global health impact of vaccines. Globally, we've made phenomenal progress on this topic, right? But still today, 5 million children per year die before their fifth birthday of completely preventable causes. But in the meantime, take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps new listeners to find the show. Special thanks to the Antigen team at Pfizer and Wonder Media Network for producing this series. Talk to you soon. This podcast is powered by Pfizer.